0: So again, welcome. Um, The way I've thought about how this course can be constructed is really with three different components. And the first component is, um, which I would say is 95% of what we're going to do together, is just uh, learning how to practice, and what constitutes practice, and what it means to um, Move from being a uh, armchair practitioner um, with a great library <laughs> um, to actually being able to embody what this practice is about. And um, you know, in the brochure we say, "Oh, you know, it's partly personal and partly professional, and so on." But this is ninety-five percent um, um, geared towards knowing what this wisdom tradition has to offer um, but knowing it in your gallbladder and in your liver and in your heart um, not just as an intellectual or philosophical um, endeavor. At this time in our culture we don't need more philosophy. We don't need a new kind of ideology or old religion. Um, And I think most of you have articulated the fact that um, whatever this path has to offer has to be something that works, and is verifiable, and has an impact. And you know this already from tasting a little um, of the um, structure of the practice, and also the stillness that comes from practice, um, and how healing that is, and enlivening that is, and inspiring. Um, So one component is just the personal embodiment of this practice. Um, And the second is um, the context out of which mindfulness meditation um, arises. We've all read John Kabat-Zinn and some of these wonderful books um, about mindfulness. Um, and sometimes uh, we like to imagine that mindfulness meditation is transcultural and transhistorical. Um, but actually, a lot of the theory out of which uh, these practices come from, <coughs> primarily in the Buddhist and also in the yoga tradition, um, they are countercultural perspectives on mental health, on uh, social action, ecological awareness, spirituality, um, that are really important for us. Most of our professional training has been studying Western theories developed by Western theorists with Western clinicians. And we often don't get a cross-cultural perspective on issues that really matter, like the notion of what an ego is, what a self is, what happiness is, how to work with anger, for example. And so what's interesting in exploring the theory together is also not where the theory that we're taking in supports our worldview, but actually where it doesn't quite fit where it doesn't quite jive with our perspective. And so one of the things I ask you as you arrive here today, and we get settled this morning into the the spirit of this program, is um, to really allow yourself to listen, not just with your intellect or your utilitarian professional mind that wants to know what you're going to do with this on Monday, but really to listen with your heart so that you can allow yourself to take in some of these ideas and see what fits and what doesn't fit so that we can wrestle with some of the theory and practice that we're going to uh, pursue together. And then it comes alive once we're wrestling with it. Um, and lastly, um, we're going to look at how once there is some personal experience with this practice and some theoretical wrestling, um, we can then take it into our clinical in our clinical work. So I'd like to begin um, with a little um, homily from the Chan tradition of uh, Chinese uh, Buddhism before it becomes what we call Zen uh, in Japan. And there's a little uh, very short passage that um, I'm going to refer to a lot this weekend. It goes something like this. Great bewilderment, great awakening. Little bewilderment, little awakening. No bewilderment, no awakening. You could translate bewilderment as doubt, uncertainty, perplexity, confusion. Great bewilderment, great awakening. How you translate bewilderment might be secondary. In terms of the thrust of this passage, this is a passage about doubt and uncertainty, but not doubt as we often use that term, especially with the group that we're sitting here, in terms of a kind of personal doubt, but where part of our doubt is also existential, where the questions that arise for us in working with people in tending to the momentum of our own minds and bodies um, where that doubt is also constructive and important and we could even go so far as to say that the depth and intensity of your uncertainty of your bewilderment is directly related to the depth and intensity of your insight. And sometimes it's hard for us to allow ourselves to really move into that place of uncertainty, what we're going to call not knowing, especially if you've been trained in an educational system that values experts and where we fool ourselves into thinking that our expertise is going to solve our experience of anguish or torment what in Sanskrit we call dukkha or suffering. Great uncertainty, great awakening. And This story, uh, or or this passage, relates to a wonderful story um, that we have no historical evidence of, but is archetypally accurate, which is uh, the night of the Buddha. He wasn't the Buddha yet. The night of uh, Gautama, when he left the palace where he lived. The palace which represents safety and security financially, uh, economically, and socially, and so on. He leaves the palace at night, and um, uh, he leaves Kapalavatthu, and the charioteer is driving him through the town, um, quietly, secretly. And he looks out uh, from his uh, chariot, and he sees three things the first thing he sees is somebody who is very old and then right after that he sees somebody who is very ill and then immediately after that he sees a corpse and these three experiences bring him great bewilderment and he turns to his charioteer And the first thing he says after seeing these three people is, does this happen to everyone? Is this going to happen to everybody? And he enters into a kind of nervous breakdown. Existential disorientation. Where seeing somebody who is aging, seeing somebody who is sick, and seeing somebody who is dead has such a visceral impact that it shakes him to the core. And we can say that um, this experience is not just foreshadowing, but also relates directly to the quality of his insight. And so there's a relationship for all of us in terms of um, the faith we have in our own ability to work with um, what life brings, and also the doubt that is the shadow of that faith. And so one of the things that I'd like you to just keep in mind as we enter into this process together is um, to allow the uncertainty to arise. Harder sometimes than we might think. Because we're looking for a system. We're looking for a story. We're looking for some kind of canopy that will um, offer us security in the face of aging, of impermanence, of sickness, and of uh, the inevitability of death. And unfortunately or fortunately, depending on the attitude of the self at any one time, um, we're going to be let down. Because what we're exploring together is not a new philosophy, and is not, as I said earlier, a new ideology, but rather a um, commitment to uncertainty. not comforting <laughs> great bewilderment great awakening little bewilderment little awakening no bewilderment no awakening any thoughts or comments anybody would like to share with regard to this little passage Mm-hmm. I think that that has been reflected in, in uh, some psychotherapies and um, I'm sorry, I can't remember who said it but that a fair bit down on how what it's really important to not understand too much mm-hmm. to go into a session without preconceived ideas and someone or other put it as uh, entering a session with no memory and no desire mm-hmm. so I think that that is a a truth that has people have tried to rediscover and re inculcate mm-hmm. in, in people for generations. Mm-hmm. You yeah. have be curious to learn. The person who said that is Bayon, who was, um, of course, very influenced by some of these same ideas that we're exploring. Um, and I think we all love <coughs> this passage. Maybe it's his most famous passage. Or we read Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, and say, oh yeah, you know, there's so much potential just in living here at this time. And then two minutes later, we're just as neurotic as we were (laughs) and are projecting the same things on our clients and so on. And so um, sometimes just the um, philosophical understanding of impermanence Um, or a kind of um, dogmatic adherence to technique can actually numb us, can um, create a gap between what's actually happening in present experience and what we think should happen, what we want to happen, what we wish would happen, what has to happen. And that gap is called Dukkha. Which is a Sanskrit word that I don't think we should translate into English for now. It's usually translated as uh, suffering. Um, We can also translate Dukkha as um, unsatisfaction or lack or stress or heaviness or a burden, something we carry around. And you create that gap. That gap that we call dukkha, that heaviness, is not something that just happens from the outside. It's the government. It's my patience. It's my parents, it's my lover, that somehow we think suffering comes at us, or is somehow built into experience, or built into whatever is moving through the senses. It would be so easy if we could just wait around for everybody to change so that we could finally be happy. And um, this is the Buddha's experience of Dukkha right from the start of this story. He leaves the palace and he asks this question, is this going to happen to everybody? Which is like saying, this is happening to everybody. Is this going to happen to me? And the heaviness of that question creates in his mind A feeling of dukkha, a sense of suffering, of heaviness. I'm aging, I'm sure to become old, I'm sure to become ill and experience pain because I'm in a body, and then death is going to occur. And if I open to that, confusion arises and bewilderment shows up. And it's too easy to reach for some kind of story that is going to solve the bewilderment. That's what we want, right? Well, if I have a really good story about the next life, then maybe my bewilderment can be put into a context, and it's not so bad. But such a theory of what will occur in your next lifetime can't actually solve the Dukkha. Any kind of metaphysical system is not going to take away the mechanism in the mind that creates suffering. Even though we say that's not a mechanism in my mind creating suffering, suffering is just everywhere. It's pervasive. Is this true for anybody? (laughs) So I'd like to try a little exercise together. What I'd like you to do is move into a group of three people. And if there aren't three people, four people. Actually, if there aren't three people, two people. Um, And what I'd like you to do is to sit together and just take one minute to find the breath and just be quiet together. And then I would like you to go between two or three people and just describe one place in your life where there is some conflict that is giving rise... To dukkha. That is giving rise to some kind of anguish in your life. If uh, five conflicts arise, just pick one. (laughs) And the people who are listening, just listen. There are a lot of therapists in here. (laughs) Don't be a therapist. The, the mode here of communication is just expression and listening. We're not trying to solve anything. So just describe one short little, um, in one short little paragraph, you know, where there's something happening now, and I mean now, today, that's coloring your experience without too much editing. And then after a few minutes I'll ring the bell and uh, we'll come back to our, our seats. Okay.